We're in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. I will go ahead and read this for us. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him, Jesus, a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is one of those passages where Mark, again, uh, sets the scene immediately and gets pretty much uh, straight into the story. Uh, you see, last week, uh, you looked at a passage where the Pharisees came posing a political challenge to Jesus. They raised a political question. This week, we look at a passage where the Sadducees show up and they pose a theological challenge to Jesus. They pose a theological question this time. And the first thing you should notice here, I think, is this. Just as Jesus always had done in the past, he doesn't dismiss the question. Right? He doesn't dismiss the question as being silly or being sinful. How could you ask that? How could you, how could you raise such a question? He doesn't dismiss the question or the questioner. What he does is he engages. He engages the question and the questioner so much so, as you will see, he gets underneath the question and gives an answer not only to the question itself but to the, to the assumptions of the questioner. He goes deep into the, the assumptions of the questioner and, and unearths and digs them up. And, and Jesus' answer always had this way of doing this, always had this way of unearthing something from within the questioner. It's as if he can read through them and not just their questions, read through the person and give an answer to their deepest longings. And I think when we apply this to our lives as well in our day-to-day, -day, you will see that he does the same for you. He does the same for me. He, he unearths a longing that we all have in our hearts. Something we don't think about in our day-to-day, -day, but perhaps if we were to focus on this passage and listen carefully, we would see that's what he does for us as well. Okay? What does he unearth? How does he do it? Well, he, he does it this way. He peels away. Jesus peels away a lot of the illusions and the false assumptions behind the Sadducees' question. And by doing so, he shows us, through the scriptures, a better story. He shows us a better story. A better story than the one that Sadducees were living and pursuing. Peels away our illusions, shows us a better story. Okay, how does he do that? Let's start from verse 19. And this is what the Sadducees ask him. 
What will happen in the resurrection? Basically, if a man's brother marries his brother's widow and bear children, and, and this repeats itself seven times with seven siblings. Seven brothers were all at some point married to the same woman. Then in the resurrection, who will be this woman's husband? That's the question. Now, just to give you a bit more context, this custom of taking your brother's um, wife, the widow, as your wife, was an ancient practice that um, preceded, existed before Moses, before even the state of Israel existed. This was an ancient practice that was widespread, pre-existing God's establishing of Israel and, and Moses entering the scene and, and establishing the law. This was a universal cultural sort of practice at the time in the ancient Near East. But here's what God did for Israel. God being king of Israel, he gave them a law that would regulate this practice under God's rule, keep it under control, so that the widow especially will be provided for, protected, and her children will continue to carry the family name. And because this that meant for them everything. Survival, stability, legacy, everything. And God wanted to provide that for the weakest of the people. Now what the Sadducees do, they take this custom or the law and take it to this ridiculous extreme and they try to conjure up some difficult scenario for Jesus try to trap Jesus in his answer. Why? Why would they do that to begin with? And Mark tells us very simply in verse 18, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. Right? They have this theological beef with Jesus because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. Here's what they believe. They believe that this life is all they have to live for. This is it. And, and to say a bit more about what they believe, they were coming from this sort of very aristocratic, highly educated family of Israel, um, very sophisticated thinkers, philosophers perhaps. They accepted the five books of Moses as scripture and using, taking that law into consideration, they lived a very moralistic life. These are, these are very model citizens. These are people you want in your neighborhood. You want to be neighbors with these people. Okay? These are the parents whose children you want your children to go to school with. Okay? These are those people. Led a very moralistic life, very model life. At the same time, they disagree with the Pharisees and the Jews, most of the Jews in this. They rejected the rest of the prophets, all the teachings of the prophets, major and the minor prophets, especially the teachings about the resurrection and the afterlife. So when Daniel talks about the afterlife, or Isaiah talks about the afterlife, they don't, they don't take that seriously. Other than the law, which they lived by on a day-to-day -day basis, right, to keep a moral life you know, in tab, tabs, everything else was just kind of silly to the Sadducees. All that stuff of the resurrection, everlasting life, angels, spirits, supernatural stuff, they didn't believe any of that. They did not believe any of that. Their worldview was, in a way, pretty much naturalistic and materialistic in that sense when it comes to just human existence. If this life is all we have, we're simply material beings, death ends all, okay? Um, it's, it's like an ancient sort of YOLO type of philosophy, okay? One life to live, this is all you got, live it up, that kind of thing. But not in a licentious way. Live a moral life, live a good life, pursue truth. So you have to understand how Mark is setting the scene here. This is the Sadducees coming to Jesus thinking, right? Jesus is this silly, uneducated Jew, just like the Pharisees, because he believes in the afterlife, he believes in angels, he believes in all this supernatural nonsense, and he's wrong, we're right. And let's expose him. That's what we're, they're here to do. Let's expose him for his silliness. Um, 
And they, so they frame this sort of gotcha question, right, in the form of this ridiculous case study, the seven brothers and the widow. Uh, in a way, from their angle, though, okay, once again, they're just out there to expose a false teacher and bring out what they think is the truth. They're just trying to say, this is the truth. There is no resurrection. There is no afterlife, right? They want to pursue the truth here. That's the scene. Now, here comes Jesus' response. Here's what he says to them. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Okay. Notice he's giving them a reason now. Right? He's, not, he's not lashing out emotionally to people who are objecting him. He's not tightening up and becoming defensive just because someone is disagreeing with him. He's reasoning with them. He's reasoning with them. The reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Okay? He's pointing them to two things. The scriptures and the power of God. Now, here's how he presents this further in detail. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay? This is his most immediate and concise summary of what he means by their misunderstanding of the scriptures and the power of God. They will rise from the dead. They won't be married or given in marriage, but are like like angels in heaven. Now, he doesn't say they will become angels in heaven. That's not what he's saying here at all. They will be like angels in heaven, meaning they'll be in a different realm, different space, a different state like the angels are in a different realm, in a different space, in a different state. Now, I know as soon as you hear the word heaven, um, what you think of is spirits sort of floating around in white garments playing the harp all day, right? It's this sort of, sort of spiritual theme park where just, right, halos, white garments, everybody has baby skin, and you're playing the harp all day. Um, that, is not, <laughs> that is not the ancient Jewish understanding of heaven at all. That is not the biblical understanding of heaven at all. That is a cultural caricature that has just sort of come up in this modern age okay, that you've seen on TV. The classic Judaism understanding of heaven and the early Christianity's understanding of heaven is this. It is this world transformed by the power of the Messiah King into the eternal kingdom of God. That's heaven. The power of the Messiah transforming this world into the kingdom of God. That's heaven. That's heaven. It is essentially the, the Garden of Eden that was lost, restored. Restored now as a city of God here on earth. That's why in Revelation, the description of heaven is new heaven and new earth. New earth. A place where we will live as God's redeemed people, free from illness, decay, sin, and death. How? By the power of the Messiah King. By His power. 
the power of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That world, that forever kingdom, that's heaven. That's heaven. And, and so the significance of this resurrection and the afterlife for the Jews was not merely, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. <laughs> Which is not true, that we will simply leave our bodies, fly away into glory, and live in this disembodied state. That's not what the Bible talks about when it comes to heaven. The significance of this afterlife, of this resurrection, is our entering into a new creation and a new world right here, right here on earth. And this is, so this is where Jesus corrects the Sadducees. Your vision of God's agenda and the scope of God's power is way too narrow, way too small. God is not about keeping your existence here on earth until your clock runs out, death comes knocking on your door, and you're no longer in existence. It's not even about continuing your previous existence into the afterlife either. It's neither. Right? It's not like if you were married in this life, you would be married in the next. It's not this continuation of what was always here. It is this, it is your resurrected, redeemed, renewed body dwelling in a resurrected, redeemed, and renewed kingdom. As we read in our catechism, question 52. God will be enjoyed forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever free from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. That's the story of the Bible that's the power of God. That's heaven. Okay. This has always been the understanding of heaven and the afterlife in early Christianity. And it wasn't until much later on when others, other people began to twist the gospel, caricature it into this moral tale about how good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And there's this chasm between the good place up there and the bad place down here. It's like if you were to you know, visit that Sistine Chapel and gaze upon the, the glorious painting on the ceiling. Right? You would just look, simply look up and go, you know, wonder when I will get there. Wonder how long I'll be stepped down here. Right? That chasm, that's a cultural caricature, not a biblical representation of heaven. The biblical vision of heaven is this, not that we must rise up to go up there. No one can. No one can. The biblical vision is, therefore, heaven came down. Heaven came down. The Son of God came down, and He's bringing with Him His kingdom. That's the better story. It's a lot better than telling you, you're in a bad place, work your way up to the good place. That is not the biblical vision of heaven. The biblical vision of heaven is, we can never ascend to the holy hill of God God descended from his holy hill. And that's the gospel, this better story of Jesus Christ. You know, don't forget the most basic form of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. The very beginning of it is, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Where? On earth. On earth. It's praying his kingdom down to earth. That's got to be our most basic longing and basic prayer. Have you missed this? How have you missed this? Have you bought into this false chasm 
of here's the bad place, there's a good place, and we just got to escape this bad place and go up to that good place. When Jesus' message is, the Messiah is bringing the good place down to where we are. And this changes everything. This changes everything about your life here on earth, right now, in the here and now. Here's how the theologian N.T. Wright put it. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospels, and the beginning of the book of Acts, nobody is saying, Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore there is life after death, therefore we're going there. They say instead, Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore he really is the Messiah, therefore he really is the Lord of the world, therefore God's new creation has begun, and therefore we have a job to do. That's what they were saying. Therefore, we have a job to do right now. Meaning, life here on earth carries infinitely more meaning now, now that we know this world that we inhabit will be fully inaugurated with the kingdom of God. One day we will see it completely inaugurated, but we have seen its beginning. This means we've got to be, therefore, until this full inauguration and consummation of the kingdom of God, until then, we have to be his ambassadors and this prophetic voices that tell about this coming kingdom. We've got to announce this kingdom. That's our job, as long as we're here on earth. How? N.T. Wright says, it's through our practice of justice, forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, restoring, Charity, generosity, unity, love, and truth. That's how. When we pursue these things, we make this kingdom of God just a little bit more visible here on earth until the day Jesus returns and makes it completely, completely visible. And this is what the early Jews called tikkun olam, which means literally repairing the world. Repairing the world. And that can be, for those of us who embrace this vision of the true heaven, this can be our story. We begin to repair the world. When this heaven, when this kingdom enters our story, or better yet, when we enter into this story, our life picks up a whole new meaning. So the Sadducees were missing out on so much of this, everything, by thinking this life is all there is. And even if there was an afterlife, it would be more or less the same. They're missing out on this better story that has been unfolding all throughout the scriptures, announcing God's coming kingdom with the Son of God ruling over it by His power. Life on earth matters so much more when you realize this is your story as well. The great illusion that the Sadducees were living in and, and sort, of, sort of self-deceivingly living under was this. And this is the ironic part. Here these, the Sadducees are claiming to have the truth about the afterlife. And they want to tell everybody about it, how Jesus is wrong, we're right. You've got you to know the truth about this afterlife. When according to their worldview... Truth really doesn't matter one bit in the end. That's the irony to this. Because if they are right about there being no afterlife, nobody, including themselves, will be around to know that they were right. Right? 
If there's no afterlife, how will they know that they were right about that? They would only be around to know if they were wrong and wake up in the afterlife and go, oh, I guess there was an afterlife after all. They'll only be around to find out they were wrong. It's the worst wager you can ever make. If you're right, you won't be around to know it. If you're around to know something, you'll be around to know you were wrong. So you see, if death ends everything, as they say, as the Sadducees say, why, why pursue the truth to begin with when it has no consequences in the end, whether you were right or wrong? Why pursue truth? Why live a truth-seeking life? Why even live a moral life? They're the most moralistic people of their time. Why live a moral life? Why not simply live for the temporary pleasures of this life? Why not drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and we will be no more? Now, don't hear me saying, because I'm not saying this, that people who don't believe in the afterlife don't live a moral life. The Sadducees did. And I have so many atheist friends who do live a very moral life. Sometimes they're nicer than Christians. Right? I don't say that too loud, but sometimes that's just the case. Don't tell anybody else I said that. So what, what am I saying here? What I'm saying is they're doing so. They're living this moral life without a rational basis is what I'm saying. They can do it. They just don't have a rational basis for doing so. It's in the absence of any objective reason, objective meaning that they live meaningfully and morally and seek the truth. It's an illusion. It's an illusion of meaningfulness in the absence of meaning. And don't take it from me, take it from this atheist philosopher of science, Michael Ruse. He put it like this. Morality is just a matter of emotions, just like liking ice cream and sex and hating toothache and, and, and marking student papers. But it is, as has to be, a funny kind of emotion. It has to pretend. Pretend that it is not just an emotion at all. If we thought that morality was no more than liking or not liking spinach, then pretty quickly it would break down. So... Morality has to come across as something that is more than emotion. It has to appear to be objective, even though really it is subjective. Ah, again, not my words, his words. He's basically saying, morality is just a feeling. It's not really objectively true and objectively meaningful, but you've got to pretend that it is. Live in that illusion, in the absence of God. He's admitting it. In the absence of God, in the absence of the afterlife, in the absence of the supernatural and the metaphysical reality of God, nothing in this life, even, even the things that you're most convicted about, good and evil, don't matter. It's a self-made illusion. But see, here's the thing. None of my very well-behaved and moralistic atheist friends actually think that their moral values are an illusion. No one, at least so far, think that. So far, they all believe that a, for example, a corrupt politician is really corrupt. And they should be taken out of office. Women's rights really are just as equal as and important as men's rights. It is really wrong to abuse the environment and cause needless waste and harm. And they're not saying, I mean, this is just my feeling. No, they really believe these are absolutely objectively true values. But again, how? 
how in the absence of the supernatural, in the absence of the afterlife, in the absence of God, do they affirm these realities? According to Michael Ruse, it's an illusion. You're pretending they're real. So Francis Schaeffer, the, the old school Presbyterian minister, philosopher, he put it like this. Imagine a two-story house. In the lower story is the finite world without God. And here, life is kind of absurd. Kind of like Sartre and Camus and those guys said that life is absurd. Because what you want to claim to have real meaning is just an illusion. In the upper story, there are things such as meaning, value, and purpose in God. And he says this, the modern man lives in the lower story, in the first story, because he believes there's no God. But he cannot live happily in the first story unless he leaps up to the second story and steals a bit of meaning, steals a bit of values, steals a bit of purpose, even though he has no right to be on the second floor because he doesn't believe in God. And he caused that, Francis Schaeffer caused that leap, the atheist leap of faith. And another, another Catholic philosopher put it like this, Peter Kreft, he says, even the skeptic, therefore, even the skeptic who does not believe in heaven has a heaven-shaped heart. Even a skeptic who does not believe in heaven has a heaven-shaped heart, pursuing truth, justice, morality, and meaning as if they are real and not illusions. I think what Jesus is showing the Sadducees is this. He's peeling away their illusion. You deny heaven. You deny the afterlife. But you really have a heaven-shaped heart, don't you? Right? He's peeling away their illusion. Right? You care about so much more than what's in the here and now. You care about truth. That's why you come to me and pose this question. You care about truth. You believe in living a moral life. You believe in Moses' five books. And not only that, you, posit, you even posited the value of love in the afterlife by the question, who will be this woman's husband? Right, this is another thing that the Sadducees seem to recognize, the meaningfulness of love and the lasting meaning of love. Right? But that's really, for the Sadducees, it ought to be another illusion right there. If death ends all, why love at all? If, if every instance of love and selflessness and sacrifice is equally buried in the ground, equally forgotten forever, as every instance of selfishness, hate, strive, why on earth then would you be sacrificial and be selfless? If this is true, here's why. If Jesus is right when he says that God is not God of the dead, but of the living, then love has meaning. It has lasting, permanent meaning. If God isn't just in a relationship temporarily for a little while with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but actually is still in relationship with them right now, then love would have permanent meaning. This is the final illusion that's being peeled away here. Jesus shows them the true extent and power of God's love for his people. God says, I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob, not I was. I am still, right now, in relationship with them. For thousands of years, 
For all eternity, our relationship will continue. There's this ongoing love relationship between these two parties. God could have simply chosen to identify himself as he had done that one one occasion at the burning bush as I am. I am. But time and time again, all throughout the Old Testament, here's how he chooses to identify himself as I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's revealing himself as a relational God who is still in relationship with his people. Now, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's saying love has meaning. It has lasting, permanent, eternal meaning. And it's not between an earthly husband and an earthly wife, but between God and his redeemed people. He's telling them a better story. And when you think about this, it really infuses into even our, our earthly marriage tremendous meaning. It makes our marriage a pointer to something eternal. Not the point, but pointing to something eternal. And that is the great permanent union between God and His people. The eternality of love, the permanence of love, the perfection of love, our human relationships cannot bear that. We can't handle that much glory. We can maybe give people a sample size kind of glimpse of it. All romantic relationships eventually lose their meaning if you don't have this at the center. You're pointing to the perfect romantic relationship between the spiritual bridegroom, God, and the spiritual bride, his people. No human being can handle that much expectation and bear that much glory. So as the Apostle Paul tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You're pointing to the love between Christ and the church. You're not the point, you're pointing. You're pointing to the ultimate marriage between the better spouse, the perfect spouse, Christ, and, and the fallen bride, the church. If you desire earthly marriage, you have to understand you're desiring to be this pointer, not the point. You have to be sober about this, that your spouse cannot be your Messiah. Your spouse will only point you to the need of a Messiah. You have to go in knowing that, because people are broken, because people are needy of this salvation. They can't save you. They need to be saved. You have to go in knowing that. Perhaps some of you are also thinking about this whole marriage and heaven thing. Well, maybe I lost my chance at earthly marriage. Is there any hope for me? And the gospel's answer is, yes, heaven, yes. <laughs> Don't buy into the silly idea that the kingdom of God, this heaven, cannot top earthly marriage, romantic love, or physical intimacy. Don't buy into that silly idea. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said, it, that's kind of like, that's kinda, this complaint about, oh, great, I didn't get married on, on this earth, and there's no marriage in heaven. I lost my chance at the greatest thing in life. That's like, C.S. Lewis says, a little boy who can't fathom what a holiday at the sea is like because he only cares about his candy bars. He doesn't have that grown-up perspective about what the higher pleasures are. We will in heaven, and only then, with a resurrected, redeemed body, have that grown-up spiritual perspective of why heaven is the holiday at sea, 
and everything on earth, every pleasure on earth, every intimacy on earth, by comparison, just a candy bar. It's just a snicker bar. In other words, true love, true community, true fellowship, true intimacy, true pleasures, we will have it all in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God. And we will enjoy it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We will have infinitely more than what we can enjoy here on earth, fleetingly, brokenly, temporarily, finitely, with one human being. This is what we are to live for, the better story, the story of heaven. As Paul says in Romans 2, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The glory and honor he's talking about here is the glory and honor of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at what God has brought for you down from heaven, the second story, in Jesus Christ. His glory, His honor, His meaning, His beauty, His truth. Behold all these things in Him and you will have eternal life. Meet this person who has come down from the upper story. And by your faith in Him, you can truly enjoy all that he brings on this lower story, even now, even now. The question for you then is, will you do that today? Will you look to the Son of God who has come down to meet you to bring true meaning into your life and tell you it's not an illusion, it's all real. Your desire for truth, your desire for morality, your desire for justice, your desire for meaning, they're all true. Don't let anyone tell you it's just an illusion, they're all real. If you will look to the Son and find all of these things in Him, if you embrace this, your life will change because now you realize, I have a job to do. He gives me a new calling in life. I have to submit to His rule, worship Him as King, and serve His kingdom. And in every sphere of your life, you can begin asking, how can I make God's kingdom more visible in my marriage? How can I, as, as a husband, as a wife, make God's kingdom more visible in our marriage? How can I make God's kingdom more visible in my parenting? In the way I, I respond to my children, in the way I speak to them, in the way I teach them, in the way I raise them up in the faith. How can I make God's kingdom more visible in my job, in the way I work with integrity, with, with excellence, with diligence, with boundaries? with rest? How can I make God's kingdom more visible in my studies, with honesty, again with diligence? How can I make God's kingdom more visible in my friendships? How can I be selfless, giving, providing, accountable, truthful, honest, sincere, and faithful? How can I make God's kingdom more visible in my dating relationship? Maintaining purity, pursuing holiness, encouraging one another to pursue Christ above all things. How can I make God's kingdom just a bit more visible today? Because I'm a servant of this kingdom and I'm living in this story. This becomes our new job description. This becomes our new calling. This becomes our new identity. What a calling. What a purpose he's given to, to us. Let's make our lives and our church all about making this kingdom more 
visible in our lives, because that's what matters. That's where it all is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son down to our story so we can engage in his story. Help us to behold him who brings into our lives all that we longed for deep down inside, your truth, your justice, your kindness, your goodness, your forgiveness. And may we resemble these things in our lives, Lord, so that we can prove ourselves to be your kingdom citizens. Help us to abandon the the former stories, the, the stories that leave us with more anxiety, more fear, more insecurity. Help us to live for your story, where there is hope, where there is where there is always this call to come and, and bear ourselves just before you, just as we are, and, and finding that you are always welcoming us in. Help us to draw near to you. We hope that your spirit would help us in this, we pray. In your son's name, amen.